Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com Could doctors enter augmented reality to help them treat patients with illnesses like COVID-19? Hello and welcome to Babbage from Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on technology and science. I'm Kenneth Couquier, a senior editor at The Economist, and coming up on today's show. At a moment when international cooperation is facing increasing opposition and obstacles, science is bucking the trend. Dario Gill of IBM has a proposal for how scientific thinking can go global. It's not just about how the public sector does it or how the private sector do it. We need to figure these new models and maybe these open collaborative models is the way of the institutions of the future. And Elon Musk's company SpaceX has successfully sent two people into orbit. So what's next for human spaceflight? There is this question of how do you pay for it and can this venture ever kind of wash its own face commercially? But first... Okay, and the next patient is B1. Yeah, so the next gentleman's a 61-year-old male who's admitted as a major trauma call. This might sound like a regular doctor's appointment. Okay, and do you have his latest bloods after the fixation? But it's actually the future of medicine in action, and it's being used to help doctors treat patients with COVID-19. And you mentioned that he had some rib fractures. These two doctors are examining a patient using mixed reality headsets. Recent imaging of his chest. So we can have a look uh, to make yeah. sure this X-ray is just coming up now. The HoloLens technology from Microsoft means that while one doctor can stand in front of the patient who has the coronavirus, the other can work in a different room that's virus-free. What mixed reality means is that you can project virtual images into the real world, so you can see them when you wear the headset, but you can also interact with them, so you can manipulate them or touch them or get them to perform functions. James Kinross is a doctor at a hospital tied to Imperial College London. He's leading the initiative. So we have been using these technologies in my practice, so in surgery, for some years, because it's very useful to be able to project anatomical images into the surgical operating field so that you can perform a safer or more accurate operation. But there's a whole myriad of other uses in education and a number of other different health applications. Let me press you a little further on this. How would you actually use it when you're actually dealing with a COVID patient? We applied this technology to COVID for a number of really important reasons. The first and most important one is that instead of pushing a computer on wheels or a cow, as we call it, around a ward with three or four doctors following behind you as you make decisions about patients, you can send one doctor wearing the computer into that clinical environment. And what that means is that, first of all, you reduce the risk for the other three or four doctors that no longer really need to be within that COVID environment, but they also 
also, for example, use less PPE. But the person wearing that computer, secondly, does not have to touch a computer. In the time of COVID, that's really important because every object you touch potentially has COVID on it. And the third thing is, is that when they're wearing the headset, they can meet other team members or other doctors or anyone that they require an opinion from at the patient's bedside. And they can see and interact with any of that patient information virtually. So they don't have to touch anything. They can manipulate those images as they see it in a heads up sort of view right next to the patient. James and his team have been piloting the scheme with the help of Microsoft. Leila Martin is the product marketing director of Mixed Reality for Microsoft UK. So underlying HoloLens is a tremendous amount of technology innovation, including the creation of custom silicon, uh, camera technology, display technology, along with uh, advanced depth sensors. And essentially what this allows us to do is to real-time spatially map our environment, to be able to display and allow for interactions, natural interactions of holograms, and critically to be able to uh, share those collaborative holographic experiences together. Now back to you, James. What is the experience of using it for doctors? What sort of things are you looking at? Every time you see someone use this technology for the first time, the first thing that they usually do is smile because it is incredibly immersive and it's it's a bit like looking into the future. So it takes five to 10 minutes to adjust to using the headset because you have to learn how to manipulate the objects, but actually it's relatively intuitive and there are other, uh, other ways of interacting through voice. So in healthcare, this provides a fairly unique set of advantages because it means that you can project not just still images, but moving images or data or information into an environment where you wouldn't normally be able to access it or where it provides specific additional information that allows you to perhaps make safer decisions. And the operating room is a really great environment for that because, of course, when you're operating, so when I'm performing an operation, I'm scrubbed, which means that I'm sterile and it means I can't touch anything. So if I can wear a computer and I can interact with even simple things like a patient's x-ray or an image or an electronic healthcare record, that's cool. But if I can say, hey, this operation is really difficult, I think I want some, some other eyes on this target, I can call someone else into the operating room and we can both look at the same case at the same time. There is obviously another important dimension here, and that is the experience that patients have. I spoke to one of them about it. Was it sometimes surreal to know that the doctors were talking about you, but sort of metaphorically behind your back? No, because the doctor in front of me with a camera, but he's he said to me, hang on, and they're just looking it up in the computer room and things like that. So he was informing me of what was going on behind him, if you know what I mean. Did it sometimes feel like you were being diagnosed by technology or by a person? No, it always felt like it was a, it was a person. A whole group of doctors standing there in front of me where there was only one person and they had more input because they had all the data in front of them on the computer screens. So James, do you think it's going to last beyond the pandemic and do you think it's going to be taken up in all areas of medicine? 
So I suppose the biggest compliment that I could give to Layla and her team and, you know, the team at Microsoft, and there's been a lot of people that have worked on this, I just would want to acknowledge, is that, that you know, this is a tool. It is a, it is a, it, it should be considered as a tool that has a function for specific jobs. It is not a sort of ubiquitous, you know, solution to all problems in healthcare. Of just, of course it isn't. You know, that's kind of an obvious point. I think the duty now is not on Microsoft. It's on us as clinicians to demonstrate the evidence base that actually will support its wider adoption. So my job now is to perform trials and to apply this in a number of what I think are good use cases for the technology to demonstrate value, most importantly, to the patient, because if it doesn't help patients, then it's not going to be sustainable, but also that it adds value to healthcare providers. Now, that value might be in the economy or it might be in the delivery of healthcare and the efficiency of how you deliver that healthcare. So it might not be a direct patient benefit. And we've seen that when we've applied this in the operating room, it allows us to perform procedures much more efficiently. When we applied this on the ward environment during COVID, our ward rounds got faster by about a third. So it might be that there are lots of other efficiencies, but we need to map these out. I was just going to add to that. I think the technology that's been around from a Microsoft perspective for the last five years, but we've just started shipping our first commercial version six months ago. I think what COVID has taught us across the board, both within medicine, but within other industries, which is during a pandemic, in a crisis, it gets industries and individuals laser focused on what those tools are that can allow us to solve real critical problems. This has been a tool that we are seeing being broadly adopted right now. I think for some really basic use cases like this remote assist, they're quite foundational use cases, but it's only beginning to tap the potential of so many other different applications and capabilities of the device. And that's one of the things that we're really looking forward to partnering with Imperial and the NHS to continue that journey. Leila Martin, James Kinross, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Next up, the coronavirus pandemic is changing how scientists collaborate. At record speeds, researchers are working across continents with pharma companies, tech firms, and university and government labs. The hope is that by pooling data and computing power, they'll accelerate progress towards treatments. The initiatives show what can be done at top speed, amid a global emergency. But what if that infrastructure already existed before a crisis? How could that change the world's ability to respond? Dario Gill is the director of IBM Research and the founder of the COVID-19 High Performance Computing Consortium. It brings together supercomputers from many institutions to support research on the virus. He's also a member of President Trump's Council of Advisors on Science and Technology. Hello, Dario. Hello. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Our first question, how did this consortium of supercomputers get started? It got started with a core idea. I had been you know, put in charge. I was responsible for mobilizing IBM's technological expertise and, and capabilities to be able to help society with, with our capabilities in the context of COVID-19. And one of the things that came to the top of the list was what are ways in which we can use computers to accelerate the rate of scientific discovery? In the end, we need a vaccine, we need therapeutics, and uh, we need to accelerate this process. So we said, hey, computers can help, supercomputers can particularly help, but why just ours? Why couldn't we join forces across all the stakeholders that have them and match them? 
to the right scientist. Now, many people think that a supercomputer is just like a really big computer, but that's not true. Supercomputers can do very special things. So please tell us, what is a supercomputer and what can it do that normal computers can't? It's a very specialized scientific and technological instrument. And what it entails is, of course, large numbers of microprocessors, which is the computing unit inside the computers that we all use, but also the way they're connected to one another, right? And the amount of memory that is or ability to store data and relevant information that we can process is different than the ones we have in normal computers. There are classes of problems in the world that involve modeling how nature works, problems of physics and biology and chemistry that are like extraordinarily complicated for normal computers to simulate. But supercomputers are very well suited to be able to simulate and model how nature works. And you can do things with them that would take you, you know, maybe months to do in a normal computer. You can perform those calculations in just a matter of days, as an example. And have you had any achievements in the last two months since you launched the initiative? We have now over 62 active research projects underway, of which 24 of them are now in sort of like in the experimental path, meaning they've used the results of the supercomputers to now guide experimental and therapeutic work. And we are working on projects on everything ranging from understanding the viral structure and function and how it evolves to creating new small molecules that would sort of interact with the spike protein in the virus to be able to deactivate it, to drug repurposing, to patient trajectories and the evolution of the virus, to genomic sequencing and how it affects different populations. So an extraordinary array of scientific projects are underway as a result of the consortium. Okay. Now, the initiative came together in an emergency, but you're arguing now for something more that the structure should exist that would enable this sort of joined up response before the next global crisis hits. Tell me more about your proposal. What would that look like? The larger reflection of, of this experience is that if we actually look in the history of different crises, right? I mean, let's look at, as an example, World War II. In World War II, there was a mobilization, of course, of the you know, research and development and scientists across different nations. But if you look at, for example, in the context of the US and the UK, what we see is that we mobilized that community. And at the end of the war, there was a very thoughtful analysis of what do we have to do with the talent that we have now during peacetime. And in the context of the United States, Vannevar Bush of, you know, penned a very famous paper uh, called Science the Endless Frontier, where he made the case for mobilizing all of that talent for peace purposes, right? And to continue to advance and, you know, mobilize for prosperity and for national defense. So that led to the creation of institutions that are as influential as the National Science Foundation. So the reflection that we have right now is in this moment of crisis, how should our research and development infrastructure and institutions evolve? And one spirit of this is we've come together in the moment of crisis, mobilizing private sector and public sector, but why couldn't we plan ahead? So an idea that we have put forth in collaboration with Abby Loeb, who chairs the astronomy department at Harvard, is could we create the, we're calling it the science readiness reserves. So if you look at another institution that plans for unforeseen events and moments of crisis, let's look at the military for a minute. They got to think ahead of scenarios or conflicts that they do not wish to engage, but they have to plan for. So the idea that we have put forth is why couldn't we have a science reserves where um, talent 
across a whole variety of institutions, public and private sector, could raise their hand and says, I want to be part of the reserves. And during those times, we could think about, hey, you have certain capabilities, let's say supercomputers to keep the example going. This is how we would work together. This is how we would coordinate and provide governance. This is how we would approve projects. And I think if we did that, learning from the experiences of what we're doing right now, we would be able to serve society even better. So I find this incredibly laudable. I have to admit, I'm, I'm really inspired by it. But at the same time, I look at existing international institutions that try to do something like that, and I see that they don't quite work as we would like them to do. When it comes to a small group like NATO, it does work very well as a military alliance. It's quote-unquote on reserve. But the problem is that it excludes people. That's its nature. It excludes Russia. It excludes China. But then you look at something like the UN, which is a big tent that doesn't want to be exclusionary at all. And I don't know if that really works that well. Uh, it just seems like it becomes bureaucratic and mired down. What have you learned about 20th century institutions and their shortcomings that you can avoid in this 21st century science readiness reserve? That's a great question. It cuts at the very core of the difficulty of either launching or reforming institutions, right? Here are some of the lessons uh, around this. Perhaps we can take a page for what has happened with open governance models, say, for example, in the software world. What you're doing there is you're mobilizing a community of expertise. So that aspect is very distributed. But there is a governance model around how those contributions from the community get shared and how they get promoted. But the reflection that we're putting forth is that the talent and expertise on optimizing a response, let's say, to a crisis is highly distributed across institutions. And we got to be clever about what that governance and the flexibility institution about how they come together. It's not just about how the public sector does it or how the private sector do it. We need to figure these new models and maybe these open collaborative models is the way of the institutions of the future as well. So let me press you on this because I'm so excited by it. You cited Vanver Bush's vision in his paper, The Endless Frontier, that he wrote in effect as a private document for Franklin Delano Roosevelt during the war that was then published after the war and gave us this idea of R&D, where, where the universities do the R, the research, and the industry does the D, the development. But I wonder that if we do have this sort of international consortium that ties up governments that you're suggesting as a reserve corps, whether we're not going to lead to the politicization of science, which is in fact was the biggest worry of Vanver Bush when he produced his R&D plan for the president. What we need to be able to provide is just a means of organization, which is easier said than done, a means to contribute. And that's why I'm drawing some parallels. It's not that that is the answer. Drawing some parallels to what happens in, for example, the open source community in software. Can we form communities of this form where scientists can contribute their expertise and sometimes their instruments? So that will require also this, the support of the institutions in which scientists work to some degree. And then be able to do that to avoid exactly the point that you've made of politicization. So I'm not arguing that an institution like this needs to be centralized under a government agency. But I am arguing that in whatever form it manifests itself, like, you know, like the consortium, absolutely allows and encourages the co-participation and contributions of scientists and the instruments across different sectors. You know, to hear you say all of this, I'm struck by the way in which it's similar to how we govern other international public goods, if you will, science being looking like one, 
Of course, ICANN governs the domain name system, and governments are subsidiary to this multi-stakeholder private approach. It has the flexibility, it's, it's quicker, it's not politicized. But then I think about the Bretton Woods systems, which is a model that you have in mind for a Bretton Woods of science, which would exist in this 21st century form. And I think that where would the leadership come from? Because it's certainly not going to come from the United States. The administration is in the process of dismantling these global institutions, not building them up. So where do you see this leadership coming from? I think the you know, institutional leadership that we're able to see across a whole variety from academia and universities. We see it also in the science endeavor with nonprofits, you know, who are investing in core science. In industry, we see it as well. And we see it in, in different government agencies whose mission is to be able to advance this. So I actually think that when you look into all these different institutions and you look for leaders in there and how we actually mobilize the resources is the central question. And then look, I'm not trying to be naive about it. It's easier said than done, right? To be able to mobilize people and get things uh, to good outcomes. But that's why we need this debate. And I appreciate the fact that we can have this dialogue because I think even in the middle of this crisis, we got to think about how should our institutions change? You know, how should we be doing science? And hopefully out of all of this, we'll end up with something that can serve the needs of nations and society much better. This is really uplifting. Dr. Gill, thank you very much. It's been a wonderful pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. And finally, since it began in 2002, Elon Musk's company SpaceX always aspired to send people into space. That goal was achieved last week when the spacecraft Crew Dragon transported two astronauts to the International Space Station, or ISS, in partnership with NASA. It was the first time a commercial spacecraft has been used to transport people to the station. And it's the first time in nine years that America has used a domestically developed rocket for human spaceflight. So what does this mean for the future of space travel? NASA has always used the private sector. So even in the moon missions, you know, the rockets and the lunar landers, they were made by big aerospace firms like Northrop Grumman. Tim Cross is our technology editor. But what's changed is the way they go about it. So what they used to do is they used to specify exactly what they wanted their rocket to do and exactly what they wanted it to look like. The private company would go away and build it and NASA would run it. They'd say to the company, tell us how much it costs you and you know, we'll whack a generous percent on the top for a profit margin. And that led to some pretty expensive development cycles. So the space shuttle, which is retired in, in 2011, but as best as we can tell, the space shuttle itself cost about $27 billion to develop in today's money. That's just for the shuttle. That doesn't count you know, any of the rockets that actually launched it into space. So what NASA did about 15 years ago was they started experimenting with a, a new approach where they said, you can contract with us to build spaceships or rockets for us, 
but you're going to have to do it for a lot less money than you've had before. And crucially, it will be with a fixed price contract, which means that if you do suffer cost overruns, you're going to have to bear at least some of the pain. And what we saw today was really the sort of biggest step yet in this process. So SpaceX is just one of many companies that are getting very interested in the commercial prospects of space. Who are the others? Yes, so you can kind of split it into what people call new space. They are sort of defined in contrast to the big existing guys like Boeing and Lockheed Martin. So SpaceX's Dragon spacecraft, which is the one that took the astronauts to the ISS, that's going to be joined shortly by another one called Starliner, which has been built by Boeing under one of these new contracts. And then on the rocket side, you've got other firms like Blue Origin, which was founded by Jeff Bezos, the owner of Amazon. You've got another one called Rocket Lab, which is based in the US, but launches its rockets out of New Zealand. And you've got Virgin Orbit from Virgin, you know, the British conglomerate that does music and airlines and all kinds of things. I'm wondering why they're going after the market, why it's less expensive, and why the private sector would do better. Because if it's simply a technology play, because processes are cheaper, memory is more plentiful, we now have better mission control systems because we have GPS, etc. You can imagine that the public sector would have been able to capture those advantages as well. So what is it about having the profit motive and having the commercial players in there that lowers it? Partly it's to do with the culture of the new space guys. And we'll go back to SpaceX because they're the most high profile. When Elon Musk founded the company in 2002, its explicit goal was to get humans to Mars. That's what he said he's always wanted to do. He wants to found a colony on Mars because he thinks we need one as a sort of insurance policy in case anything goes wrong with planet Earth. And if you're going to do that, the very first thing you have to do is make getting into space as cheap as possible. So SpaceX is kind of founded with sort of cost cutting in mind. And the same is true of companies like Blue Origin. And the motive for this, I think, ultimately, is that these guys are space cadets. Jeff Bezos thinks, you know, living on Mars is a bad idea. What we should instead do is live in giant space going habitats that are like three or five kilometers long and house tens of thousands of people each. And then the more prosaic reason, I suppose, is that under these new procurement rules, the contracts that NASA offer are just much more tight fisted. And if you do overspend, you share the pain. The company has to sort of chip in. We mentioned earlier that the space shuttle cost about $27 billion to develop. And there's a new capsule called Orion that's being built in the old way with the aim of sending astronauts back to the moon. And it's hard to do exact comparisons because the different spaceships can do different things. But still, the Planetary Society, which is a spaceflight advocacy organization in the US, they reckon that Dragon has cost NASA about $1.7 billion and Starliner, which is Boeing's effort, maybe $2.8 billion. You're talking about orders of magnitude, less money. Now, what are they doing when they go into space? Are they just sort of experimenting for when we could actually holiday on the moon? So this is the big question. And, you know, you can talk about these grand dreams of colonizing Mars or living in space habitats and so on. But there is this question of how do you pay for it? And can this venture ever kind of wash its own face commercially? So, again, if you talk to the space companies, they'll say, well, look, if we can offer ultra cheap access to orbit, then, you know, a market will develop. So several companies are betting on things like broadband Internet beams from low Earth orbit. And if you want to do that, you need constellations of, of thousands or tens of thousands of satellites, way more than we've ever put up before. And obviously, cheap launch is a big part of that. NASA is keen to get the private sector to do research and development work on the International Space Station. There's things like uh, Earth observation satellites, so guys like Planet Labs who run sort of like private sector spy satellites, and they can watch anything that can benefit from seeing a sort of God's eye view of the planet from orbit. And I think there is some kind of commercial 
play to be made there in, in low Earth orbit. I think it gets a lot sketchier when you start talking about moon bases and Mars bases. And people have these wild schemes about mining helium-3 on the moon to put into fusion reactors that we don't even know how to build on Earth and all this kind of thing. I think that's all moonshine. I think if we do go back to the moon, which America wants to do by 2024, it'll be for the same reason we went the first time around, which is national glory and to demonstrate your prowess in space. And the only difference will be instead of the Soviet Union, America will be comparing itself to China. Well, Tim, I appreciate your pun and Rutherfordian reference. But of course, Ernest Rutherford was wrong when he used the term moonshine to describe the possibilities of splitting the atom. That's right. He, he, he said it could never be done. And maybe one day we'll have helium-3 reactors on Earth. I'm just not quite sure it's worth spending hundreds of billions of dollars to go and mine the stuff until that day arrives. Fair enough. I'm glad to know that you're fiscally probate. My final question to you, Tim, is do you think that you will go? Will I actually see you on one of the rockets when I'm on it? I think I'd need to switch career from journalism to something a lot more lucrative if I've got any chance of being a space tourist. You might be able to go for a story. Make it a press trip. Elon, are you listening? <laughs> Thanks a lot, Tim. Thanks, Ken. And you can read more about the future of space travel in the upcoming edition of The Economist. And to subscribe, go to economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12 or £12. And that's all for this episode of Babbage. While you're with us, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It makes a big difference. I'm Kenneth Couquier, and in London, where I'm planning my holiday on Mars, this is The Economist. Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.